So last week we looked at the resurrection of Jesus Christ that was in, covered in the first part of chapter 15. And hopefully everyone was convinced of the necessity of the resurrection of Christ and its relationship to the gospel. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. And Jesus Christ is still in the grave. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. And it's crucial that we understand the importance of Christ's resurrection so that we can see the power of God demonstrated in Christ's resurrection as well as gain confidence in our, that in our own lives at the consummation of time, at the end of time, that we too will be resurrected in new and glorified bodies ever to be with our Lord. So this week we begin that study in, in uh, chapter 15. So as a bit of a background and a reminder, the majority of the Corinthians did not seem to doubt the resurrection of Christ, but they seemed to have doubt in their own resurrection at the end of time. And there were many theories that were going around at the time about what happens when a person dies, somewhat like we see today with so many different varied uh, theories that people have. Soul sleep, uh, reincarnation. Uh, when I read up on absorption, where the soul of the spirit returns back to its source, you know, just it seems like there's a, uh, just, uh, you know, um, Tons of, everybody that has an opinion has a different thing about what happens after you die. Uh, you know, simple materialism where the body just rots away, the soul is gone. And all these views had one thing in common, and that is that what remains, if there is anything that remains, is not that person any longer. It's that the person who dies is just no longer that person. So I think what Paul is battling here with the Corinthians, which was a basic belief of the, of the many Greeks in that time was dualism, where everything spiritual was good and everything material was bad. And John uh, O'Rourke kind of alluded to this view last Sunday night as a form of Gnosticism. And we talked about that, how um, anything material was bad. It was bad. But spiritual was good. And so that was the dualism. They held that view. And so to anyone who held that view, resurrection of the physical body in any form, that wouldn't be something that they would look forward to, but they would dread that. You know, in Paul's speech at the Areopagus, the Athenian philosophers, they reacted unfavorably when, when Paul brought this up at the res, brought up the resurrection. In Acts 17, 32, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to scoff. But others said, We, will, we shall hear from you again concerning this. You know, even some of the Jews did not believe in the resurrection, particularly the Sadducees, which is why they were sad. You see, everybody remembers that? You remember that? They were Sadducees because they didn't believe in the resurrection. And even though the resurrection was clearly taught in many places in the Old Testament, they still did not believe it. Consider Daniel 12. Now at the time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And there will be a time of distress such as never occurred since there was a nation until that time. And at that time, your people, everyone who is found written in the book, will be rescued. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These, who were written in the book, these to everlasting life. But the others to disgrace, to disgrace and everlasting contempt. And we also hear Jesus frequently bring up the resurrection and bring it into focus. John six forty four, And no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said to her when he was talking to the woman, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even if he dies. 
1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. So the resurrection is clearly taught in both the Old and the New Testament. No doubts, right? Now, I'm sure that we don't have any people here that doubt the resurrection of Christ, but which was the same way with the believers in Corinth at that time. They didn't doubt the resurrection of Christ. They were just warning about their own bodies. They didn't see how that would happen since material things were bad. So why would the bad thing be resurrected? They didn't fully understand that. But the resurrection is indeed a crucial piece of the gospel. And so let's read through the passage here in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's start at verse 12. God's Word is more important than anything I have to say. So if you wonder why I always read through the Scripture once or twice, this, this is why, okay? God's Word is you know, sharper than any two-edged sword, and, and, and it will accomplish what He sent out for it to do. 1 Corinthians fifteen twelve. Now if Christ is preached that He has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ... That's not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then only those who have fallen asleep in Christ then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people most to be pitied. But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by man death came, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ I will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that, those who are, who are Christ's at His coming. Then comes the end, when He hands over the kingdom to our God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. For He must reign until He's put all His enemies under His feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For He has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when He says all things are put in subjection, it is clear that this excludes the Father who put all things in subjection to Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him, so that God may be all in all. For otherwise, what will those do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brothers and sisters, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what good is it to me? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Sober up morally and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So Paul begins his correction to the Corinthians by first bringing up the fact that Christ has been resurrected. A fact that the, most of the Corinthians already believed. All the believing Corinthians already believed. And then he spends verses 12 through 19 helping the Corinthians see that if they say the resurrection is impossible, then Jesus Christ was not resurrected. 
You know, Jesus Christ was a man who had walked and talked and ministered on the earth. And I'm sure that they had met people who had either met Christ or heard from people who could verify that Jesus Christ was a man who walked and talked on the earth. He'd walked among them and, and witnesses had seen his physical body crucified on the cross. You know, Jesus was then placed in a tomb and, and then just a few days later was walking around and talking and eating with his disciples. The resurrection of Christ was accepted but somehow they didn't think it possible for their own bodies to be resurrected. And Paul shows them that they're, he shows them their faulty logic. If Christ, who was fully man, was resurrected, then you too can be resurrected. If Jesus Christ was not resurrected, then the gospel message would be meaningless since it does hinge on his resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But if Jesus Christ was not resurrected, it would mean that their faith in Christ... If Christ was still in the grave, it would mean that their faith would be worthless. And all the many preachers and the prophets and the teachers, and they would be liars. So if the resurrection was not true, then they would be, still be in their sins and captive to Satan. And all those who had lived and died believing in Christ, they'd simply be dead forever. And, and that would make Christians the most pitiable people in the world, he says. Because it would be a false belief. Placing all their belief in someone who proclaimed a resurrection of the forgiven to eternal life. But was not resurrected themselves would surely be a sad state of affairs. So it is therefore a good thing that Christ was resurrected, is it not? You know, it reminds me of those who were making fun of Christ. You know, deliver yourself. You say you can, you know, do all these miracles. But yet they did not understand his role, his uh, uh, task that God had given him. But if the Corinthians had thought through this faulty belief of theirs and, and simply trusted in the person that they said they did, they would have seen the foolishness of their position. And I'm not saying that they could simply figure it out on their own, but their position was unsound logically. You know, you cannot hold on to a position that, well, the resurrection is impossible and the resurrection is possible. What is that, John, what is that called? Law of non-contradiction. You can't have one thing here and, and the opposite so their position was logically unsound. And even though they had access to the mind of God, they chose to follow their previous, those pagan theories of that spotlighted man's foolishness. Some of those theories were that dualism, that Gnosticism, that materialism, soul sleep. Some of those odd theories that they chose to hold on to. Now, I'm sure that many would have defended their position by saying, well, Jesus Christ was not really... <coughs> And fully human. He only appeared to be human. And we hear some of those same things today, don't we? <coughs> Excuse me. Or maybe he only appeared to be resurrected. Now that was one of the, the tricks that Satan tried to pull. Just say his body was stolen. We'll pay you some money. Remember that? They wanted, they wanted to deny the resurrection of Christ. It is crucial to the gospel. But all these excuses fall flat when we look at some of the scriptures about his early life and the actions he took after his resurrection. And I want to remind you of a recent text which we covered in our corporate worship, say, corporate worship service, Luke twenty four thirty nine. And it's a passage that recorded steps that Christ took just so that there would be no doubt concerning his bodily resurrection. Luke 24, see my hands and my feet? It is I myself. Touch me and see, because the Spirit does not have flesh and bones as you plainly see that I have. When he said this, he showed him his hands and his feet. 
While they still could not believe it because of their joy and astonishment, he said to them, Have you anything to eat? They served him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in front of them. So the eyewitnesses, of which there were hundreds, all bore testimony to the bodily resurrection of Christ. So the Corinthians had no reason to believe otherwise, other than just willingly choosing to discount what Christ has said and what Paul had said and what the apostles had said and what all the witnesses had said and what the Old Testament Testament scriptures had said. I mean, to discount or deny the resurrection would require them to call all these other people liars. And all this to hold on to that pagan theory that all material things are bad and the spiritual realm is the only thing that could be good. You know, one of the verses that jumped out at me this week as I was studying that's used in evangelism. One of the most well-known verses gives some additional light. Romans 6.23, For the wages of sin is death, right? But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The wages of sin is death. What does sin bring? Death. What is the gift of God? It's eternal life. So if Christ remained dead in the grave, then that means sin had won. Right? And for the Corinthian saints to remain dead, that would mean that sin had won in their lives also. That the gift of God, eternal life through Jesus Christ, that that would be an, all be a sham, right? Just a scam that is peddled like snake oil. So it was important that they understood these. These are untenable positions and they're, they're heresy. Okay? So this is heresy to believe that Jesus Christ was not resurrected and that there is no resurrection of the entire population at the end of time. Some to life everlasting and some to judgment. You know, Jesus himself said in John 14 that I will not leave you orphans. He says, I'm coming to you. After a little while, the world is no longer going to see me, but you are going to see me because I live, you will also live. So Paul dealt with their belief here in the first part of chapter 15. And he put forth their position and and what the ramifications of it would be. And he assures the Corinthians that Christ had indeed been resurrected from the dead. And none of those speculations could be true. And then he explains why this is true and gives them logical and scriptural reasons to believe it. 1 Corinthians verse 20 says, But the fact is, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who sleep. For since by man death came, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and after that those who are Christ at his coming. And then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to our God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. So Paul mentions that Christ is the firstfruits of those who are asleep. And um, I read that there was an offering that the Israelites brought every year around the time of the harvest. And that was actually consisted of the first fruits of their harvest. And it was given to the priests. And they couldn't actually harvest the remainder of their crops until they had first gave the first fruits offering to the priest. Now the remainder of the harvest you know, would have been the same as the, the first fruits that were gathered. Just they'd been later. That's kind of what they would have been familiar with that here. Those first fruits were simply gathered first, and then the majority was gathered later. And it's the same way with Christ and being the first fruits of the resurrection. Jesus Christ was a man who was resurrected first, yet we who remain and have fallen asleep, he says, will be resurrected in that same manner. You know, Christ had a supernatural body. 
that after his resurrection that could pass through doors. But yet it could also be felt. Remember he said, come and, and feel, touch me. Spirit doesn't have a body. And he even ate food. You know, it doesn't seem like his body required food, but he still ate the broiled fish in front of the disciples, in front of his children, <clears throat> just as, you know, give them more evidence that he was alive, that he was real, he was not a spirit. You know, it's my opinion that we too will have <clears throat> a resurrected body that will have these same qualities. You know, we're, not, we're no longer going to be tied to a, a sinful and, and, and ravaged body that has sickness and, and physical limitations. And, and, and a lot of people are glad to hear that, especially those who suffer now in their fleshly bodies for one reason or another. So the good thing is we'll be in our prime, whatever that is. I don't know. Uh, we're not given tremendous amounts of detail about what our glorified bodies will be like other than that you know we won't know sickness we won't have pain we won't be you know tears will be wiped away so but we will have those glorified bodies and scripture doesn't, doesn't give us a lot of detail about that but we do know that we'll be different and if Jesus Christ is the first fruits then we have a good idea what we are going to look forward to Christ is the first fruits Christ was full Jesus Christ was fully man. So when he was resurrected and given his body, that's going to kind of give us an idea of what we're to look forward to as well. You know, maybe we'll walk through doors. Maybe we'll, we'll eat, you know, at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Maybe we'll be able to do certain things that, you know, we can't even dream of now. But rather than speculate on that, let's get back. Okay. Now, verses 21 and 22, a lot of people have an issue with. For since by man death came... By man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ I will be made alive. A lot of people don't like this idea of original sin and being blamed or held responsible for the actions of another. I had a young intern I was working with this, this uh, summer, and he didn't like that at all. He, he didn't think that you know, Adam's sin was transferred to us as you know, federal representative. He didn't see that at all. He said, you know, it's only your own sins that matter. It's not that federal representative. And I can understand that. You know, we don't like to take blame for what somebody else did. But the problem is the very idea of a federal head it requires a representative in our... It requires a representative. And when someone tells me, well, I don't like the idea of being represented by someone else, right? I mean, that's... You can understand that, right? You don't want to be represented by Adam. But that choice also requires you to represent yourself in keeping the law. I mean, there's two representatives. We, can, we are represented by Adam. But those who repent, who trust in the gospel, now we're represented by Jesus Christ. So if you want to get rid of that federal representative of Adam, then you're also going to be representing yourself when you stand at the, at the throne. And you're going to have to account for every sin that you ever committed, even in your mind. So do you want that federal representation by Christ or not? Okay, so it's important. You can't refuse Adam's representation and then accept Christ's work on your behalf. Christ came as the second or the last Adam. You know, the first Adam failed in his attempt to live righteously, but the second kept the law perfectly. Verse 24 here, though, is the part that gets me excited. And then comes the end. Think about that. And then comes the end. 
when He hands over, when Jesus Christ, when He hands over the kingdom to our God and Father, when He has abolished all rule and all authority and all power, for He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. That gets me excited. Then comes the end. Think about that. That's what we live for. Now the Corinthians, they did not believe in that physical resurrection of their bodies. They didn't have that, that hope to look forward to, that end, when their physical bodies would be resurrected, glorified. They didn't have that. And we'll see what happens when we don't have correct doctrine in our lives, when we don't believe the right things, how they lived. Because they didn't have that belief that they would be resurrected. But when Christ has successfully accomplished all that the Father sent Him to do, which includes reclaiming the elect who were selected from the foundation of the world, it says, then the kingdom would be given to the Father and He would be done with His work. All the enemies will, be brought, will have been brought into subjection to the Son and, and the very last enemy, death, being forever defeated at the resurrection. The just to life everlasting and the wicked to eternal damnation, which is sometimes called the second death of which there is no escape. Verse 27 continues, For He has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when He says all things are put in subjection, it's clear that this excludes the Father who put all things in subjection to Him. When all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him so that God may be all in all. In verses 27 and 28, that's just Paul's clarification in case the Corinthians didn't really quite understand you know, the explanation of the quotation fits in all, all caps in your Bible. That's basically a quotation from the Old Testament. It's in Psalms chapter 2, verse 6. It's also repeated in, in Psalm 8, verse 6, and in uh, Psalm 110, 1. It's used three, four times in the New Testament, that same phrase. He has put all things in subjection under his feet. Verse 29 continues, For otherwise... What will those do who are baptized for the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why then are they baptized for them? Why are we also in danger every hour? I affirm, brothers and sisters, by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, that I, Paul says, die daily. If from human motives I fought with wild beasts at Ephesus, what good is it to me? If the dead are not raised, let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Verse 29, what is this baptism for the dead? If you got a chance to read through Corinthians this week, surely that got your attention, didn't it? All right? Does it remind you of maybe the Catholics doing, you know, earning grace for those who have gone before? Or maybe like the Mormons with their special underwear that were doing things and checking out their genealogy so that they could, you know, try and get their relatives into heaven, right? So the good news is that if you don't know what that means, you're in good company, Okay? Apparently, this has been a, uh, one of those things that's been talked about for centuries, and no one has a, a, a proof of what that is exactly. But I do want to give you the top three choices that I narrowed it down to. And the most simplest is that people were actually getting baptized for unbelievers who had died, hoping to gain them some spiritual benefit. You know, now, just because Paul mentions it does not mean that it's true that they would gain... You know, some spiritual benefit, of course. Paul would know better than that. You know, who else you know, would know better than that but Paul? But it's just mentioned. He mentions it. The second choice, and these are just some I narrowed down. If 
if Christ is dead, then because you know they were saying you know maybe Christ was never resurrected. Well, if Christ is dead, then of what use is it to be baptized to follow a dead Savior? That word for they're being baptized for the dead, they're being baptized on account of the dead, they're being baptized for Jesus Christ the Savior that was dead, if that's what they believed. So maybe that's what it talks about. For Otherwise, who, what will those do who are baptized on account of Jesus Christ if he was never raised? And then lastly, if there's no resurrection and no life after death, why are people coming to Christ to follow the hope of those who have already died, those who have gone on before? Why are they continuing to be baptized? Why are they continuing to be brought into the fold? Why are they continuing to join the church for the, um, for the hope of the dead that have gone on before? Why? That hope is gone. So I'm not sure exactly what this, uh, what this definitively means, but I, here's what I do know. That you know, Scripture doesn't give us the exact answer, and it's not clear there, but it is an example that Paul used that they were aware of, and it gave evidence that without the resurrection it would have been worthless to be baptized for the dead. So, of course, it was in their minds. Now, it's still worthless to be baptized for the dead, but yet if they believe that, you could show them their faulty logic once again. Patrick, you want to speak to that? No? I didn't think. So you agree with me? I do. You heard that, didn't you? So if you don't know what it means, welcome to the fold. Okay. And the other example that Paul gives in support of the resurrection is the amount of suffering that he personally has endured. He mentions, you know, I died daily and, and the, fought the beasts at Ephesus and, and, you know, all for a future benefit which starts after his resurrection. And if there is no resurrection, why would he bother trying to battle you know, all his physical battles as well as his spiritual battles and, and stand up to the enemies of Christ daily and, and constantly, you know, beat his body into subjection. Why would he do all that if there was no resurrection? He's helping them to see that. You know, wouldn't it be better just to leave a, live that hedonistic lifestyle? If it feels good, do it, right? You ever heard that before on TV, right? If it feels good, do it. Just do it, Right? I mean, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, right? So why would you even bother taking account of anyone else? Why would you bother to live a righteous lifestyle if there were no resurrection of the dead, if this was all that there was? What would it matter? Why would you even give any thought to the future? You know, Paul uses that quote from Isaiah twenty-two thirteen to show the hopelessness of that position, you know, a scripture that was used in the description of the disobedient Israelites. Let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Verse 33 says, Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Sober up morally and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. You know, verse 33, that, that's actually from a, a well-known poet at the time. Menander, bad company corrupts good morals. And although Paul may have borrowed that line from uh, this heathen poet, it, it was still true. The bad company of those who were denying the resurrection and who were saying that all material things were bad, and they were the same ones who were living as if their sinful lives lived in the flesh did not make any difference in their spiritual lives. Now here's the point that you need to capture, okay? 
Those who denied the resurrection of the flesh didn't see any future life at all. Those Gnostics who only saw the resurrection of the spirit and then the, you know, the, the evil bodies finally unloaded, both of those beliefs were false and that tended to give the Corinthians no incentive for holy living or for sanctification. Bad company corrupts good morals. He says, sober up morally. Stop sinning. And then Paul writes, some have no knowledge of God. I think that could refer to one of two different groups of people. It could be those who deny not only the resurrection but of Christ as well, those who have no knowledge of God. And We looked at last week, you know, if you deny the resurrection of Christ, that's basically denying the very gospel. And those who are given faith to believe a spiritual heart to, re to receive the truth, a mind transformed by the gospel, they would never deny the resurrection of Christ because it is a spiritual truth that's understood by spiritually enlightened mind. God gives us the faith to believe. Okay? God gives us the faith to believe the gospel. The resurrection is part of that gospel. If you don't believe the resurrection, then you don't believe the gospel and you've not been given faith to believe. So those are some who would have no knowledge of God. The second group that Paul could be referring to could just be those unbelievers outside the church who, who don't believe the gospel and, and they didn't see any life-changing difference with the Corinthians inside the church. They were living as if there was no future and their lives didn't matter. Their physical lives, eat, drink, and be merry. So therefore, they wanted no part of it. They wanted no part of that weak uh, gospel that didn't have even enough strength to change their lives. So in this part, he says, I speak to your shame. You know, the Corinthians witness for Christ with their lives should brought shame upon them. Because the unbelievers wanted nothing to do with the, the gospel. that had no life-changing effects. Excuse me. So the disagreement that we read about here in the Gospels and the Acts between the Pharisees who believed in the resurrection and, you know, the, in the, of Christ and the Sadducees who denied that resurrection was still going on here and even in, in Corinth. And just as Paul had warned of the false teaching or the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees in Matthew, so we see some of it here today mixed in with a handful of that Gnosticism, that dualism. And if I could leave you with one thought today, here's what I want it to be. Here's what I want you to think about is... is as you meditate on things that we've done today. Is how we think, is that important? How we think or what we think determines how we live. What you think will change your life. Correct doctrine does make a difference in the way we live our lives. You know, the Corinthians denied the bodily resurrection and they lived every day only for themselves. If you thought something was going to key if you drank it, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't drink it, right? If you thought it was poison. If you thought there was no resurrection and we only have this life right here, why would we even bother holding the door open for each other? <laughs> right? Why would I bother waiting on you to come to the meal, a Thanksgiving meal downstairs? I want turkey and dressing. I don't care if you get it or not. Why would I go first? Remember, that's what the Corinthians were doing, remember? Why wouldn't I get drunk and then come to the fellowship hall because there's food there, right? I'm just going to get drunk and come here, you know, be all happy. And Why? Well, that's what the Corinthians were doing, right? 
Were they being kind one to another? Were they offering you know, to do things for one another or were they living for themselves? Why was all this happening? Well, there is no future resurrection. How am I, what's, what good does it matter to me? The, the body is dead and gone. So why can't we just live how we want to live now? So what you believe will matter in your life. Okay, so what you believe will matter in your life. That's why it's important to have correct doctrine. And you've heard the old saying, doctrine divides. No, it doesn't. Doctrine unifies. Okay, correct doctrine changes our lives, brings us together. Okay. Also, Roger, I think when you say like in Gnosticism that there's no concept of dominion, if matter is bad, I mean, there's no place for vocation, right? Yes. What's the, there's, there's no point. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's real interesting. There's no point in, you know, there's no place for art. There's no place for music. Yeah, music, vocation. There's no, yeah, it's real interesting. When you, if there's no life, if there's no resurrection, why not just steal? Why well, have a job? Yeah. And, and in some sense, I, I guess the Gnosticism maybe lingers today and yes. you know, maybe in the two kingdoms approach toward the world or, uh, and dominion, you know, just we're just spiritual, you know, we don't care what happens in the world we're just worried about the spiritual part but, but anyway, I'm yeah, sorry <laughs> Patrick I was a seminary in Mississippi I was a youth director at a church while I was there about one year so there were about 12 kids that would come every high school age kids that would come every Wednesday night and I started getting the feeling from them that they really weren't believers, they didn't really seem to understand the faith. So one Wednesday night I, I asked them, there were 12 of them there, if Jesus did not come back to life after he was crucified, do you think we should still have church? And 10 out of 12 of them said yes, we should still have church. And we should still come to church. And the other two started arguing with them and were like, well why would we do that? Because that would mean that nothing we believe is actually true. And it, it made for a really good discussion, but they, they really were of the, the mentality that, yeah, you just go to church to learn morals and to, to have friends and be a, a good person. But like, like this passage says, you just walk through. If Jesus did not come back to life, we're still in our sins. We have no hope, and we might as well stay home and watch football. Agreed. Anything else? Let's close in prayer. Our Father and our great God, we come to you. We're so thankful that uh, uh, you did find Christ sacrificed worthy, that he was resurrected from the dead. And we stand here today with uh, renewed spirits, with uh, the new life in Christ because of that. Lord, teach us that correct doctrine does influence the way we live and, and that uh, we do need to understand uh, what you have for us, uh, what you... Uh, want us to do for you, how we need to please you with our lives, because there will be a reckoning at the end of time, and, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who remain will be joined together in the air forever to be with our Lord and Savior. So Lord, teach us to love you, teach us uh, the things from your word that we need to understand to properly live our lives to please you, to raise our children, to, uh, to deal with other uh, issues that come up in our lives, to deal with the unbelievers to proclaim the gospel and all the many things that you have for us. Teach us to fulfill our callings. 
Lord, we do ask you to be with Patrick now in the service to come, that you would uh, edify your saints as we worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name.